Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. In May of this year, Brian Brooks took office as acting controller of the currency. During his short tenure, Brooks has already made statements regarding the role of banking organizations in supporting communities, approved the first national charter to a fintech organization, and suggested a federal payments charter. He has even asked for public input on how banks should look at crypto. It is clear that Brooks has a significantly different perspective on the role of the OCC than his predecessors and the leaders of other regulatory bodies. It is still to be seen how broad the changes in regulations will become in the future. We are fortunate to be joined today by Brian Brooks, the acting controller currency. Brooks's background includes roles at One West Bank, the board at Fannie Mae, and his chief legal officer at Coinbase. In today's episode, we discuss how the scope of regulation is changing and the expected impact on legacy banking. So welcome to the show, Brian. Over the last four months since the beginning of your role as the acting controller, you have faced a lot of challenges. The country was in the middle of dealing with a pandemic with branch offices closed and the industry working remotely. There was increasing financial pressure on the industry. At the same time, there was the need to modernize the regulatory structure we have worked under for decades. Over the last four months, what's it been like and was it all that you expected? I expected a lot less than this. So it's been everything I always wanted and more <laughs> would be the optimistic way of putting it, Jim. Thanks for having me and for giving me this platform to chat with your listeners. I would say the toughest thing in a moment like this is not to let the urgent overtake the important. There were a series of macro trends going on in finance long before the COVID shutdowns occurred. And if anything, I think what we've learned from COVID is that the change to a more modern financial system has to accelerate if we're going to serve everybody in this country who needs access to financial services. It's all the more urgent in a world where people aren't willing to go into retail shops. They don't want to go to a bank branch. They don't want to touch cash. All of these things in some level sort of accelerate this trend toward technology innovation. So we have to do those things. But at the same time, we're in an environment where banks are under real stress. People are losing jobs. We're shutting down you know, whole sectors of the economy. People are going bankrupt and banks have to support that. So we have to be able to do more than one thing at a time, but I don't wanna be knocked off the long-term agenda because there's a short-term emergency. We have to be able to address both things. It pretty much worked together. At the time we were shutting down, the industry really ramped up in many ways from the perspective of certainly digital banking. Obviously, none of us in the industry were prepared for the shutdown that occurred in March or the financial ramifications of a country that pretty much was at a standstill. How well do you believe that both traditional and non-traditional financial institutions have managed the changes brought on by the pandemic? You know, I, I would say that it's been fine so far with an asterisk. And so when I say fine, banks would tell you earnings are under massive pressure because net interest margin no longer exists. There are loan delinquencies on the horizon. They haven't all come through the system yet. But if we don't turn on the economy broadly and soon, you know, we, we know that a lot of these loan categories are going to be under stress. If we don't have another CARES Act and we don't open the economy, we, we could have major recessionary pressures. So it's fine today. Remember, this is a recession of choice. We have decided that it is less risky to turn off the entire economy than it is to endure the pretty unevenly distributed depredations of the coronavirus. So that's a choice we've made but that choice will become more costly over time. So that's a problem. So the traditional banks 
they're doing fine. They're well capitalized. They're serving their customers. Their loans are being you know, worked out in ways that we would want them to work out. At the same time, it's really, really good that we've got this tech sector in finance today, because when it came time to roll out the Paycheck Protection Loan Program, for example, or various other of these rescue packages, we really needed tech innovators to figure out a way to rapidly reach large numbers of customers that the big banks were a little bit slow to do. We needed fraud detection systems that traditional systems couldn't capture, et cetera. And a lot of that help came from fintech. I'll just tell you one very quick vignette, which is early in the rollout of these various COVID relief packages, we convened a series of listening sessions with both banks and fintech companies. And what was very clear was they each needed each other. You know, the banks needed fintechs to help them do risk assessments and identity verification checks and other things. And the fintechs needed the banks as the source of capital through which, you know, these dollars were going to flow. So it was a good thing in the end, I think. You mentioned the loan business and obviously the impact on the on all types of loans is yet to be realized. All financial institutions increase their loan reserves while some banks and fintech companies have all but shut down their operations from a loan perspective. What risks are you looking at closely? There are a couple of things that are of great concern to us. At a macro level, we're very concerned that we continue to have to examine our banks remotely. And so regardless of whether you're talking about credit risk or operational risk, cyber risk, or something else, it's always easier to detect problems face-to-face. Indeed, as I've learned from our bank examiners here at the OCC, Many of the greatest bank frauds in history weren't discovered based on management reports or slide decks to the board. They were discovered when an examiner sat in a meeting and he heard something that seemed inconsistent with something somebody else said in that meeting, and he followed up, and that's when he discovered there was some kind of a fraud or some kind of a cover-up. So at a macro level, simply having to work from home is a risk to the entire system and I think is not a sustainable long-term strategy. If you go one level below that, we think about it in terms of there are individual sector risks that are really standing out to us. So for example, on the credit side, there are some industries that are doing just fine and some industries that seem like they are under real threat. So anybody who's an investor in a commercial office property right now is really wondering, is anyone in America ever going to come back to work? Because if they don't, we've got a lot of square footage that's going to go vacant and that's going to be a problem. If you're a lender to the hospitality industry or the travel industry, industries that depend on density and turning tables and room occupancy, you can't have those industries with social distancing. You can open at 50% capacity and that will extend your runway to bankruptcy by a period of time, but the industry itself is not viable on this basis. And somehow, you know, people don't seem to be ready to come to grips with that fact. So we look at those things and the reserves being taken against those assets and we see big flashing red lights on the horizon. Unless, again, we either change our risk tolerance or figure out another way to adapt. Those kinds of things are problems. Then there are subject matter risks like cyber risk, where criminals and sovereign threats have gone through the roof during this period. I think the cyber criminals know that lots of us are glued to our screens all day today. We're not in our best decision-making framework because of the stress of the pandemic and the shutdowns and everything. And as a result, we're much more likely to click a link we shouldn't click or to fall victim to an internet scam or whatever. And in the world of managing you know, the banking system, it's a real risk when foreign actors decide to take advantage of the situation. So there's a lot to worry about. But again, Jim, I come back to, I'm inherently an optimist. We've shut things down for six months. Hopefully we're coming to a place where mostly we're seeing a reopening trend. Florida fully reopened recently. Even New York is allowing indoor dining at a limited capacity starting this week. There's certain signs that maybe we're going to come to our senses and reopen. 
If that happens, I think the system will be okay. If not, we're going to have to rethink risk management. Part of the whole dynamic of not being in this position ever before is you don't know what to measure it against. So you look at the, you mentioned the restaurant industry, not knowing how many restaurants are simply open to pay their employees with the government checks that they're receiving and really not in business. And you were getting to the fall and winter when that 50% guideline becomes a lot tougher when you don't have outdoor dining. Correct. But even more so, you have the situation on mortgages where just because a person forego loan payments doesn't mean they couldn't make loan payments. They could simply be using those funds to pump up their savings accounts for risk. Because if you're just deferring, it's not a big risk. But there's no way to manage knowing what that is, except from some of the more sophisticated organizations that are doing models based on that. But again, uncharted territory. At the OCC, we, we do get pretty interesting reports of cash flows going through our banks. And one of the things that has allowed me to sleep at night for the last three months has been two things that aren't obvious on the face of the data that you read about in the newspaper. So, you know, in the newspaper, for example, you read that the unemployment supplement has expired. You read that the PPP program has now been exhausted. And that would make you think, oh, my God, if we don't get another rescue package, we're in big trouble. But I can see deposit account balances and I can see that a certain percentage of those funds are still sitting unspent in people's checking and savings accounts, which tells me there's some amount of dry powder left, you know, before we run out. Now there's less than there was, but about 22% of those dollars are still sitting in deposit accounts, which tells me we've got another month or two of runway before things get dire. So, so I see that. Another thing that you would not know if you only read the papers is that a certain percentage of these mortgages that are in a forbearance arrangement right now, are still contractually current. They're still paying on time every month. And it's just that the borrower took out the forbearance as a hedge against you know, future problems. You wouldn't necessarily know that if all you read was the newspaper headlines. So, so that's my optimist way of saying things could get bad. They really could. But we do seem to have some runway left in front of us here. And if things turn on in another six or eight weeks, we may yet get out of the woods okay. What role do you see AI taking in banking, especially in regard to the way that we make evaluations? So for several years, concerns have been raised about inadvertent discrimination, either built into loan AI or developing the systems as they learn. How does the OCC get involved in auditing that type of dynamic? We're actually looking at that exact issue right now. You know, I think one of the reason that AI has not gotten broader adoption is that the regulators haven't spoken more clearly about what we think the risks and benefits of these kinds of technologies are. So on the credit side, I, I would tell you my personal philosophy is that AI has two potentially enormous benefits. One is a financial inclusion benefit. The other is a credit risk management benefit. Let me start with credit risk management. So right now, the most predictive models for credit underwriting only capture around 65% of credit performance, which means that a significant amount of the time we are either making loans that are going to default, but we don't know it, or we're denying loans that would have performed, but we don't know it, right? The best models are only capturing about 65% of performance. The promise of AI is that AI is not dependent on a human being making educated guesses about what factors might predict your future credit worthiness, right? So when we look at your FICO score or your current assets or your loan to value ratio, those are not irrelevant, but they're far from the only things that would predict your future performance. And if it turned out that your future performance might depend on your zip code, or they might depend on who's in your Facebook network, or it might depend on any of a number of other things, the closer we can get to 100% credit predictiveness, the, the better these things will be. And AI is much more well-suited to do that 
than even the most talented econometrics expert. So I start with that. More important, and this touches on your point about fair lending risks, our current credit models are highly tied to existing credit score methodologies like Vantage Score and FICO and others. Those things are super useful. It's really good we have those things. But there's a significant number of people who don't have a credit score because those scores are built on certain kinds of data and not everybody generates that data. So as I've said a million times before, if you're the kind of person who pays your rent on time, but you don't have a mortgage, and you pay your utility bills on time, you know, but you don't have a credit card, et cetera, you may be really good at making recurring payment obligations every month, and yet you have no credit score because the legacy scoring systems don't capture that. AI isn't dependent on you having a credit score. AI is simply looking at all available data across all people who have you know, any kind of a credit product and making predictions based on big data as to whether you'll perform or not, even if you don't have a credit score. That would be super useful for financial inclusion because, again, there are 45 million Americans, disproportionately many of them people of color, who don't have a credit score. Now, there's some risk in this, right, which is AI does not allow us to unpack the box and figure out which elements were leading to a loan denial or a loan approval. Inevitably, because of a history of unequal wealth and income distribution in our society, any metric that you have will affect black people in particular more heavily than white people. That's inevitable. And yet the low-hanging fruit here is there are a lot of minorities who should have loans anyway, who are just as creditworthy as anybody else is. Let's start by serving them because that's easy. And then we can do the hard work of, and what about the people who aren't creditworthy um, on any measure we can figure out? How do we help those people? But if we haven't even solved the easy problems in our society, you know, uh, we, we, we shouldn't get hamstrung by the fact that there are also hard problems. Our research we've done for the Digital Bank Report shows that those organizations that are the most comfortable with AI are, are the top five banks. In addition, there's some examples in the smaller and certainly many of the fintech firms. Is there a need to or desire to keep more of a level playing field when you talk about things like AI and technology? Because you know many organizations, except for risk, really haven't fully embraced AI or the ability to take credit scores from multiple areas beyond traditional sources. What is your role or is there a role for a regulator to really push the elements of growth and, and moving forward modernization of, of thought around things such as credit scores? I don't see our role as building product or in telling people they should use AI as opposed to using something else. But I do think that our role should be tearing down barriers and providing frameworks within which any given bank can evaluate what kind of tech they want to use. The reason I'm not too worried about the fact that the early users of AI or blockchain or whatever else are, are the big banks is that with every new technology, whether it's consumer tech or B2B or credit, you know, fintech, whatever, there's always a cascade from the early adopters to the middle adopters to the late adopters. Personally, and people would find this surprising just given how excited I'm about this stuff, I'm generally a late adopter of technologies. I got a CD player late in the life cycle. I got a MacBook, you know, pretty late. My iPad, you know, everybody else had one first. I don't know why that is, but I'm kind of a late adopter. In the world of fintech, it would make sense that big banks are going to be the early adopters. And the reason for that is, is that early in the adoption life cycle, technology is expensive. So if you remember the early calculators in the 60s, those things cost $500. The early CD players cost $1,500. Three years later, they cost $49, right? And it's the early adopters who subsidize the research and development. The point is, 
big banks are going to subsidize the development of these technologies and mainstream them so that they become affordable for community banks. But there will definitely come a time when everybody will use some of these core technologies. They just might come a little bit later. And, and that's okay. You know, community banks shouldn't be subsidizing that because the lift is smaller for them. It makes sense for the big banks to do that early on. From the beginning of your tenure, it's very clear that you were not one to really sit on the sidelines and simply respond to issues in the marketplace as they came to you. In fact, within a month of assuming your position, you made comments about the role of financial institutions in serving communities and the potential of using COVID as a backdrop for closing branches. In fact, I probably came out somewhat against you saying that, geez, I understand what's going on, but we've got to do something about CRA. Were you surprised by the reaction you got to your first statements getting into the office? You know, look, I've spent, contrary to popular belief, decades in D.C. It's true. I recently came from California, but I've been here a long time. And I know how this town works, so I wasn't totally shocked. I mean, you don't come into these jobs unless you're prepared to be a happy warrior every day. And listen, I have very strong views about things, but I'm also very open to the feedback. And so believe me, I've had difficult conversations with both Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill. I'm going to be wrong probably 47% of the time, and I'm okay with that because the way you innovate is you have hypotheses and you test them and you test and learn and try new things. And if I'm getting 51% of those things right, then it's a really good thing I'm here doing this job. I'm willing to own the fact that CRA is better than the status quo, but could also be even better than our version. And that's why I've welcomed the Federal Reserve's ANPR on this issue. You know, we'll learn stuff next year. And if there's something valuable in it, I got no pride of authorship on this. I'm happy to reopen the issue and make it even better. All I know in going with CRA that we have today is this a heck of a lot better than any other alternative at the time we adopted it. And I don't want to wait and let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So my view is this is a town where people do a lot of theater. You know, we have great conversations in private and then we savage each other in public. That's okay. I get it. I'm a grown up and I've been doing this a long time. But if I can spend some number of months or years making the system better and more inclusive, I'm going to do that. And I'm not scared off by the fighting. The words innovation and regulation in OCC have never necessarily been tied together, but it's becoming more and more of the reality of how you're running the office. It's clear that there's a lot of forces playing at the same time, impacting payments, traditional banking, lending, investing. Can you talk a little bit about how the industry is changing, but more importantly, your role in managing or at least monitoring this change? Well, listen, that, that's a great question, and it gets to the core of what we're doing. So let me first of all talk about our role. I come from the viewpoint of governments are not very good at building things. They're not very good at serving customers. They're not very good at innovating. They are really good at risk assessing. They're really good at managing and creating frameworks and setting rules within which people can live their lives and build their businesses. So I want to focus on doing those things. So when people say, Brian, you know, how do you want to innovate banking? The answer is, I, I don't. I don't. But I know that people want innovation because I see it in their market choices. Why does every coffee shop in America choose to use Square as their payment processor as opposed to a bank? Why does every internet business want to use Stripe instead of a bank? I don't know. And I don't have to know. But I know that they do. Right? There's a service level. There's a specialization. There's a bespoke experience they're having. And they're voting with their feet in those directions. So I know that that's true. I also know that the investors of the world are speaking. They're giving 15x multiples on big bank stocks, and they're giving 50x multiples on fintech valuations. That tells me that somehow 
both investors and customers are wanting services delivered in a different way. So my job isn't to tell them they're right or wrong or to tell them this service is better than that service. My job is to say, okay, if that's where the market's going and my mandate is safety, soundness, and fairness, how do I ensure that I can continue to preserve safety and soundness even as these core banking services migrate into fintech platforms? The best idea I've got is I need to rethink the bank charter. I need to be able to offer those companies access to my charter so that I can maintain visibility and serve my function of making sure those activities are safe and sound. As simple as that. But I'm not in charge of innovation. Markets are. And markets are just the aggregation of individual customer decisions every day. That's what our economy is all about. So recently, we interviewed the head of Varl, the first fintech to receive a national charter from the OCC. Since then, Jico bought a federal thrift. You've worked in the non-traditional space for some time while at Coinbase. How has that background outside the traditional banking space helped you in redefining the scope of your position today? There are a lot of people who look at my whole career and say I was never very traditional, which might explain a lot. But I would say that I have been involved in fintech going back years before I was at Coinbase. So just to give you a flavor, I mean, yes, I did crypto for a couple of years and really uh, kind of learned a lot about that. I'll come back to that in a second. But also, I was on the board of one of the biggest internet lenders, a company called Avant. I was an advisor to a blockchain digital credit bureau. You know, I was an advisor to a loan administration electronic platform and a bunch of other things. So I've been doing this for a while. And what I saw was there is a reason fintech is having this moment right now. And it's because banks do a great job of serving 75 or 80% of the market. And weirdly, we have more than 6,000 banks in America, and they're all focused on the same 75 or 80% of the market. And then there's 20% of the market that's not really served at all, or it's not served very well. That's why fintech arose, is because they saw a vacuum that they could go fill with having, having to compete with anybody. So at Avant, for example, you know, we served a segment of customers that were highly creditworthy, but weren't served by banks. These were people who were right next to prime credit. They were not subprime. They were pretty solid. They, we knew that losses were going to be relatively manageable, but no bank would touch them post-crisis. And we said, well, we'll come in and we won't even have to compete, right? All of that stuff is to the good. I think that the, the kind of framework we have to have for these things is, is that we've got to figure out ways of extending finance to the people who need it the most. These are people who are immigrants, they're first generation, they're entrepreneurs, they're people trying to climb a ladder. And I think fintech can be sort of the first rung on that ladder. I mean, I'm getting a little bit far afield of your question, but hopefully you can sort of see, I've been doing that a long time. And the insight from non-traditional finance is there's lots of profitable business to be had among people who aren't rich and aren't pristine. The Coinbase experience just took that to a whole new level, Jim, because Coinbase doesn't just question, you know, how can we provide a banking service to somebody not served by banks? The Coinbase insight, kind of the crypto insight generally is, what if the whole concept of money is different than we thought? Like, what if the way that value is transmitted in society doesn't have to be this way? And we could create universal access, even in places, you know, in refugee camps in Bangladesh, in you know, the Brazilian-Venezuelan borderland where economic refugees are fleeing the, the economic disaster of Venezuela, is it possible that there's some kind of transnational currency that could be accessed any place you have a cell phone, even if there are no functioning banks? That's a deep insight when you go down the rabbit hole of that. And then you start to realize that crypto is a global payment system that can exist even in the most broken economies of the world because it's not tied to the governments. That's a, that's a whole deep thing. And I think there's a lot more to play out on that thread. But suffice to say, there's a lot of learning to be done here, and that was a seminal experience for me. 
A couple of weeks ago, you wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal where you made it clear that bank charters should not require an organization to take deposits, including lending firms and payment firms. Why is this discussion important given the current regulations and how would a national bank charter for a payments company benefit consumers? There are really two questions there. Why is it important and how do consumers benefit? So first of all, the idea of why it's important is there's a lot of business that 10 years ago was done exclusively in banks. And so we could all look at it and supervise it and make sure it was safe. I'm talking about payments in particular. Even if you went back 15 years, something like 50 or 60% of consumer lending in America happened inside of banks. And so the bank regulator, namely me and my predecessors, the bank regulator could look at that activity and make sure that disclosures were given, consumer protections were observed, sound underwriting was occurring and the like. And then for all the reasons I described a few minutes ago, all of that business started leaking away to specialty platforms that didn't have bank charters. The activity is the same, let's be clear. Banks lend money, banks engage in payment processing, but more and more of that activity is fleeing the bank system. So that leads me to think, if the only kind of company that I can supervise is a company that takes deposits and those businesses are leaving the depository universe for the non-depository universe, then we have a choice. We could either reimagine the bank charter and allow me to extend my supervision to those kinds of companies, or we can just take for granted that that risk is going to be outside the supervised system. Shadow banks will now be the most important things in the economy. And in the next financial crisis, you won't be able to blame me. I think to ask that question is to answer it. You get into a situation that your scope of influence is getting smaller every day because of the breaking apart of the banking industry, much of which has been done, you know, eyes wide shut, where it keeps on happening in different places. You know, first it was the retail POS systems that banks said, oh, that's a little bit of business. Then, you know, we now have all the information that comes from that. And now a lot of these same institutions are going, geez, well, I, I have an example where my PayPal account they're continually offering me loans while my traditional bank doesn't. Why? Because PayPal has more information on me. And how does your role play into how data is collected, how it's used, and the whole privacy aspect of what's going on? Because it's it's a balancing act that almost seems like a value transfer. I don't mind Amazon having a lot of information on me because they use it effectively, responsibly. We haven't gotten hacked, you know, knock on wood. But the reality is I get value from that transfer. What role do the regulators or should they play in how data is collected, how it's used, and the whole privacy aspect if it's done in the framework that you'd like it to be done? Coming back to what we were saying about charters a minute ago, with the idea that one of the reasons that these fintechs exist is because a combination of the internet and APIs that allow almost anyone to get access to bank data mean that banks no longer really have a monopoly on the data generated by their customers' transactions. So one of the reasons banks exist in their current configuration is, for a long time, a bank knew how much money you made because it got a direct deposit from your paycheck every two weeks. It knew what your assets were because it had a savings account, a checking account, a money market fund, possibly even an affiliated brokerage that would you know, have all of your assets in it. And it knew your transaction behavior and all kinds of other things. Post-Graham Leach-Bliley, it might even know your risk because it might maybe have an insurance affiliate that was looking at the various uh, risks that you presented and how you, how you covered those risks. APIs and the internet now mean that anybody can get information for free, so banks don't have that monopoly anymore. And so the data question becomes really relevant in terms of the decline of banks as a share of overall financial services because anyone can do it. You and I can start a financial service company today 
just with the information we can get on the internet, we can be pretty effective. So then the question is, if the banks don't have a monopoly on data, then whose data is it? This raises a really interesting question in terms of banks and their technology partners. So one thing that we learn is, you know, a lot of banks that are below the top 10, let's call it, maybe the top 15 banks, are heavily reliant on these third-party providers that people refer to as core processors. Core processors play a critical role in our ecosystem. They're among the most important companies in banking. They basically provide the tech platform and backend for any community bank in America and most of the regional banks. Under their contracts, though, a lot of these contracts say that the transactional data generated you know, on their platforms belongs to them and not the bank. So then, how A, how's the bank supposed to use that information to deliver services to their customers? And B, how's the bank supposed to protect it when it's a matter of contract? It's not theirs, it's the core processors. So that presents a series of issues. And then you get to the question of, you know, GDPR and some of these complex regimes that say customers own their data. They have to affirmatively authorize you to use it or you can't use it. You have to let them delete all data from your system. They have a right to be forgotten, et cetera, et cetera. That stuff, even though GDPR has now been around for a significant amount of time, is still kind of at the frontier of how data interacts with the ability of banks to deliver valuable services to their customers. Personally, you know, I believe that there ought to be disclosures. I think the Graham-Leach-Bliley framework on privacy was fairly good. I start to get worried in a world where you say that individual customers have to affirmatively consent before you can use information. Because here's the thing, I'm too busy to affirmatively consent every time the bank wants to do something. And yet I want the bank to call me up and say, hey, Brian, we noticed you're paying too much interest on your mortgage and you qualify for a refi. I want that to happen. And I'm way too busy to come to the bank and tell them, hey, you can use my information to evaluate me for a refi. I'd rather only get offers that apply to me and not get offers that don't apply to me. And that requires banks having some right to use that information, which after all, they're a party to as well. So I think there are important social questions with all of this. But at the end of the day, your question on who owns the data is of much broader dimension than just the consumer question. I mean, it's very foundational to the industry. I don't think any one entity is going to own the, the data, but it's one of these things that you go, okay, who am I going to rely on to protect it? And the bank's most likely are going to play a primary role in that. You know, over the past decades, the different organizations that regulate the banking industry really have not necessarily been on the same path. They don't make necessarily the same decisions. They even look at innovation differently. At this point, would it make sense for the different agencies to begin pursuing some interagency innovation activities or start to view things more similarly rather than you know, everybody looking for the path of least resistance and more similar to what's going on in the UK? I think there's a lot to be said for the UK model. And I've said before that you can imagine a way of rationalizing our three banking agencies so that instead of all three of us, you know, examining different categories of banks and conducting basically similar activities, you can imagine a world where we had one supervision agency and that would be the OCC. We have one deposit insurance and resolution agency, that would be the FDIC. And we have one agency that conducts monetary policy, that'd be the Federal Reserve. That, that would make a lot of sense. Having said that, that's not the system we have. And I would argue that the system is a little bit less confused than most people would think just based on what they read in the newspaper. What I mean by that is we don't have overlapping jurisdiction. We all regulate different kinds of institutions. So at the OCC, I regulate essentially all of the biggest banks and a lot of small banks too, don't get me wrong. 
But the vast majority of banking assets are in the OCC system, including almost all, I mean, really other than one company, all of the biggest banks in the United States. Versus the FDIC and the Fed, they regulate very different kinds of institutions. So it is possible that from where I sit, we can be much more fashion forward on tech innovation because we're dealing with, among others, the biggest and most sophisticated institutions that are capable of financing innovation and managing the risk that could be associated with early adoption of a new technology versus if I was only focused on regulating small community banks, that just might not be high on my list of priorities. I'd probably be much more worried about their solvency or their or their success or failure in a crisis. So having said that, yes, it would be great if the United States at the top of the house could align around an innovation agenda. The good news is right now, my partners at the Fed and the FDIC are heavily innovation focused. Of them, I'm the only one who's actually worked in fintech, but they're very supportive of it. And so I don't perceive a big gap. We can't have this discussion without talking at some point about crypto. It's a hot topic, but it's really an unknown topic by many, both inside and outside the industry. You've issued a clarifying letter uh, giving banks authority to provide custodial services for crypto. Where do you see the role between banks, crypto, and actually crypto in the global sense playing in the next five, six years? Jim, let me begin by saying that even though you or even I a couple of years ago see crypto as something of a mystery, it's a mystery to fewer people than you think. I mean, many people are not aware that there are almost 50 million Americans who own crypto. This is not a niche thing. There are as many Americans who own crypto as use Uber. It's a new thing, but it's been broadly adopted pretty rapidly. So I think that's an important thing to know. Another way of thinking about it is, I just read an interesting data point yesterday that told me that on election day 2016, the price of Bitcoin was $916 per Bitcoin versus yesterday, the price of Bitcoin was $10,795 per Bitcoin. Pretty radical rate of return, suggesting very, very strong investor demand. So I begin with the idea that it's not as niche as some people may, may believe. Having said that, I think that crypto is seen as mysterious because the understanding most people have of it is as an investment asset that is highly volatile. So a lot of people are saying, why in the world would I buy Bitcoin when its daily price movements might be 25% and I don't have the stomach for that? And if you thought that's what crypto was, A, you'd wonder why it had any value at all, and B, you would wonder why you'd want an asset that had that VIX going on inside of it. Here, in reality, crypto is about something different. Crypto is about the power of networks versus the power of vertically integrated intermediaries in the delivery of value exchange. So the thinking about Bitcoin is it's not about the token, that the Bitcoin itself that has a transaction value. It's about the fact that the value of the Bitcoin is based on the value of the underlying network of computers that are simultaneously validating transactions in a transparent way that's visible and public. Basically, the Bitcoin blockchain and other blockchains are doing what banks do. They're a ledger of transactions that are validating who owes what to whom or which asset is moved from person A to person B, et cetera. And that kind of network connectivity has a ton of value. The reason they're called tokens, the, re the reason Bitcoin and Ethereum, these things are called tokens, is because for people who are in this world, they regard that as the thing that you use to access the network, much as you might use a subway token to access the subway or a laundry token to access a washing machine. They're giving you access to a valuable tool. One of the reasons that we've come out with these crypto letters, and, and you mentioned our custody letter, we also have a second letter about stable coins, is that we believe that one way of thinking about these blockchain networks is their payment systems. Value is being transmitted across a network from person A to person B in a way that is actually faster and cheaper 
than ACH or SWIFT or any of a number of other uh, payment networks that exist in the world. But it's fundamentally performing the same function. And the token is the native asset that represents the value moving across that network. And so if banks are plugging into other payment systems, our belief is that they need to start learning about this payment system and be ready for it when it scales. So what role does regulation play in that whole world of crypto? Because it's still somewhat the Wild West outside. And you have many players in this that are not within the United States. How do you balance that? How do you regulate how that's done? Or is it simply a point of value? And it really is not the same as blockchain, obviously. But where do you go from that? I think there's a micro answer and a macro answer to your question. The micro answer is, you know, look, this is an early stage asset and an early technology. And usually in early technology, the guys using it the most are the bad guys. Think about the early days of the internet where the main use of the internet was pornography and bank scams, literally. There's still a lot of pornography and bank scams on the internet, but now we also have Amazon and Google and a lot of other valuable services. In the world of crypto, there is the worry that the early adopters are mob guys and you know foreign bad actors. They are computer cyber thieves and things like that. And that's why the big thing that the federal regulators look at is BSA AML compliance. You know, we need to build a regime that ensures that these assets can be traced, that we can conduct criminal investigations on blockchain the same way we can inside the banking system, et cetera. And those kinds of things we need to provide clarity on. At the same time, we also have to look at this as a consumer protection issue. So one reason our first statement on crypto was about custody was because of the idea that there are millions of Americans who hold this stuff and the safest custodians for any given asset are national banks. And yet we had not authorized national banks to perform that role before. We authorized them to hold gold bullion and fine wines and antique art and things like that. But at some level, you know, this asset needs to be custodied. That's an important consumer protection we can offer. Most important message I want to land, though, is it's a matter of international competitiveness. Other countries are focused on blockchain and stablecoin and central bank digital currencies as a way of competing with the dollar. My view is if we do not start allowing dollars and other financial assets to travel on blockchains, to take advantage of the programmability features of some of these uh, technologies, then eventually the dollar will not be able to compete in the world with other countries' currencies, which you know we don't have a monopoly on reserve balances the way that we did 50 years ago. And so if we don't make our dollar more feature-filled, more customer-friendly, more useful, then eventually the dollar will be less relevant in the world. And my job, after all, is controller of the currency. So part of my interest is in making sure that our national fiat currency continues to have value. We're also talking about fintech organizations that are international in nature, some of which have referenced the fact that they'd like to make their foray into the United States. How does the regulation play that or what is your perspective on outside organizations, be they from the UK or even at some point, maybe from China that want to come in and want to offer digital banking services under regulatory guidance? Well, the, the good news, first of all, is that we have a legal regime that allows us to license and supervise those kinds of things. So, you know, one of the things that we regulate here, we regulate national banks, we regulate savings associations, but we also regulate foreign branches. So there are a number of companies, the Bank of China would be an example of one, since you mentioned China that we do license and we supervise. So those things are important. It becomes a little bit more complicated when you migrate to a fully internet delivered suite of financial services that may not physically exist anywhere. They may have no branch, they may have no assets, and yet they're targeting American customers on the internet for various services. And over time, I think we'll have a regulatory framework for that. But in the meantime, the authority that we have among others is the authority to regulate foreign branches. 
which we entertain applications for, you know, every year and, and grant licenses to. You were quoted as saying that your job is not to protect the incumbents and it's not to preserve the status quo. You've proven that in your short tenure. Where do you see the banking industry going, both in the traditional and non-traditional sense, over the next, I hate to go any further than 24 months because change is happening almost daily, it's certainly from your office. Where do you see the big changes if you had a crystal ball, not just from what do you think is going to happen, but let's take the second part of that question being, what would you like to see happen, which may not be the same thing? So, Jim, I, I heard a couple of weeks ago that somebody on Capitol Hill had referred to me as the John C. Fremont of uh, financial regulation. So, <laughs> you know, I'm going to try and be the pathfinder here for you and tell you maybe where banking can plant its flag out west somewhere. So I think that I actually can forecast a little bit what this will look like. My belief is that there are three kinds of institutions that will be affected in three different ways. So, first of all, I think the big GSIB banks, you know, the big money center banks, are not going to look that different 10 years from now than they look today. I mean, they'll offer services in a slightly different way. Their mobile apps will be a little bit better. But at the end of the day, if you have global scale in terms of velocity of money, you're always going to be a central player, right? Money center banks will always have a role in the world, and it'll look a lot like their role today in terms of broad risk intermediation for the global economy. At the same time, I think community banks will do better in the next 10 years because A, they will always be the trust providers in their local communities. You know, they will always be the people who are at the Kiwanis Club or financing the local Chamber of Commerce projects, you know, are financing local businesses because they're closely, closely tied to their communities. Now, I'd say the world will be better for them because I think we will have solved some problems that make it hard for them to adopt better technology to serve their customers a little bit faster. We'll solve some of their problems with core processors, with third-party risk management, the like. But they'll play their same key role, but I think they'll be more profitable and more successful. The category of banks that I worry about a little bit are the banks in the middle of that. The regional banks that are not quite big enough to really have scale, but they're certainly not small enough to have the undying loyalty of their local neighborhoods where they are. These are the, you know, the 10 state banks that have $150 billion of assets, but not $600 billion of assets. You know what I mean? Those companies, I think, are going to ultimately sort of skinny down their suite of services to focus on what they're best at, and they'll outsource a lot of other things. So any given one of those banks might be a major mortgage company, or they might be in the factoring business, or they might do rail car finance or whatever, but they can't be all things to all people because unlike JP Morgan, they're just not big enough. What you'd expect in those cases would be spinoffs of business lines, you know, sales of business units and a focus on the core. That's my belief. And so I think those are the banks that are going to have the hardest work to do to make sure that they're only doing value-add services and not doing commoditized services. That's my prediction. The research we're doing, we're seeing the same thing you're saying, which is the big banks get it. There are a lot of smaller banks that, number one, don't necessarily need to get it from the, let's say, a digital perspective. But even in many cases, they are the most innovative. They don't have as much legacy to go through. And if the leader believes in it, the culture goes with it. It's that middle range that is caught between legacy thinking. I mean, you've seen in the regulatory set where it's a traditional move up the ranks of the organization, start off as a management trainee. They've been in the bank for 40 years, 30 years. They're surrounded by people that think exactly like them. It's culture that changes everything, that makes it very difficult, as well as finances and innovative spirit and all these things. And we're seeing the exact same thing, that that middle group is the group that seems to be falling the furthest behind what's possible. What are you most worried about in the next 24 months? 
I mean, look, there are two things that I really do worry about. So as I said at the beginning of the program, we turned off an economy, you know, at a time when we did not have a full sense of the risk of a healthcare event. We now have a much, much greater sense of that. I mean, we know from the most recent CDC data that people aged zero to 19 have a 99.997% survival rate. People from 20 to 49 have a 99.98% survival rate. Yet, my home state of California is still locked down. What I'm worried about is we have changed the economic culture of the country and we're never going to turn it back on because we're scared in a country that used to be a bold, dynamic, risk-taking economy which is what made us richer than Europe is our risk tolerance has gone away. I worry about that. I don't believe it's true, but I really, really worry about it because we are no longer calibrating cost and benefit. We are only focused on risk and we are not focused on trade-offs. And if we don't turn the economy back on, you don't need banks. Banks are that a finance economic activity. And if we have no economic activity, you know, it's back to the dark ages. So I really worry about that. And I really worry about the idea that we're saving lives in the sense of, you know, like biological lives without saving the richness of what life really has meant in this country. And banks are a good early warning sign of that. So when we see economic activity declining, when people aren't willing to pay money to finance things because they don't see an upside, those are bad signs, not just for the economy, but for life in this country. So I really worry about that. And then the other thing I worry about in a more picayune way is that we will continue to see kind of leakage out of the banking system and these institutions that are the best suited to manage risk and intermediate you know, transactions will no longer play the central role they have played. And instead, it, it'll just leak all over the place with no coherent supervision. As I say, that's a more garden variety picayune kind of risk but it's really important. And so, you know, the other most important thing I think I'll do with this job is to win the litigation over fintech charters, because if I don't win it, it's bad for the country. So those are the things probably more than anything keep me up at night. I hate to stop a show at a point of like the negative, but the reality is what you've just mentioned are two very opportunistic situations. COVID, you could see as a dramatic negative. On the other hand, it does test you. And as you said, the ability for innovation to happen is never greater than during times of crisis. If we can keep the foot on the pedal and we can keep on moving forward, it's a really dramatic time that we can have a much more correlated view of what banking is going to be. And as you said, the regulation of fintechs and combining them with the bigger banks. And if we can, you're continually fighting the legacy thinking of let's keep the outsiders out. That's not the best solution. And I think your last comment about the risk, it's really an opportunity because the opposite of that coin is simply saying, or we make them work together and move forward together. So I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while, and it's, it's interesting having to continually update my uh, interview platform as days go on because you continually put your head out there and you haven't had a cutoff yet. So I wish you the best of luck because you seem to be having a lot of fun. Never had a better job than this. The best job I've ever had. It's the most important job. And I really appreciate the platform today. You can look at things one of two ways, but if you're not passionate about what you're doing, don't do it. You are definitely passionate about what you're doing. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you, sir. Boy, what an interesting interview with Brian Brooks from the OCC. You know, it's interesting to talk to a regulator or a person in the regulatory field that has so much passion for what's possible. You know, my impression of regulators has always been that they're state, they hold back the opportunity to grow and to innovate. 
But Brian definitely has a different perspective and it's something that we should all take notice of because he's not done. He obviously has a mission and a passion for doing what he's doing. And I think legacy financial institutions have to take notice that they're going to be able to get a lot of runway to do what they want to do. And if you stop and you don't do it, you're going to lose. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just rate as a top five banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the digital banking report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.